0: Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Aaron Snyder.
1: And I'm Angie Fryermuth.
0: Today we're looking back and celebrating more than 100 episodes of Inside the Castle, and we have a special guest with us for the second time, Lieutenant General Scott Spellman. General Spellman, thanks for joining us here today.
2: Angie and Aaron, thanks. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So looking back on on more than a hundred episodes of Inside the Castle is it's pretty crazy to me, Angie, that we've been doing this now for really almost two years. And you know, I've trying to think back of some of the episodes that really were most inspiring for me. And and I always think back to the diversity, equity, inclusion series and the Holocaust. I feel like the episodes that like pull at my heartstrings have, have been the most exciting. And it's been a great run working with you as the co host and really appreciate all you've done here. So we kind of want to see what episodes, you know, really struck a chord with you.
1: Aaron, I would tend to agree that those episodes were some of my favorites. If I had to choose another series, it would be a day in the life of. It was always interesting to hear about the unique opportunities that are available within the Corps of Engineers. One of my favorites from that series was the dive team. Learning uh, what they did and how difficult it was to perform some of their work was just fascinating. And not to mention that they train in the same facility that NASA uses to train their astronauts, which is pretty cool. So shifting back to our interview today, we last had you on Inside the Castle shortly after you'd taken command. And during that time, we talked about your priorities and U.S.A.'s future direction. A lot has occurred over the past year. Can you highlight key actions that have been taken to support priorities and U.S.A.'s future direction?
2: Andy, uh, absolutely. First, congratulations to both you and Aaron on your your century episode, 100 episodes. That's amazing. Before we do that, I just want to thank both of you for doing these uh, these podcasts. You are, whether you know it or not, you are enabling. Uh, communication across a very diverse organization that has a lot on its plate, uh, a lot of work we're doing for the nation. People are working incredibly hard across the enterprise, and we always want to strive to communicate more effectively, and and you are certainly help us uh, doing that. Last month I was uh, interviewing for our next Command Sergeant Major. It will be the 15th Command Sergeant Major of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and one of the the topics I was discussing with each of the nominees was just this, communication, How, how can we do it better? And uh, one very seasoned command sergeant major uh, shared something with me that I wrote down and said, "Sir, if you haven't said it in the last 30 days, you haven't said it." So some of these things, uh, you, Angie, you and Aaron have heard me say before, but I've been on leave for a couple of weeks and uh, I haven't said in the last 30 days, so I think some of this bear repeating. But no, th- thanks for that. Th- that first question. It has been a very busy fiscal year 22. We're getting into the home stretch. We have uh, five weeks left in this fiscal year and we have. We've, we've covered a lot of ground this year. I always like to go back and highlight the things that people always ask me. Hey, what's on your mind? Well, I've got 23 things on my mind, and it's all, they're all objectives in our, our USACE campaign plan. But just a couple I'll highlight that I think I'm, I'm most proud of, of the team for getting done uh, this past year. And f- the first one is UCP number 11, objective number 11. And that is to improve our consistency in partnering. You know, we have worked with industry, it's been about 20 years since we have published any doctrine, any guidance to the field on this very important topic. So we, we published our partnering philosophy, outlined our principles, that we call them the three C's, collaboration, communication, and commitment. And we uh, published a partnering playbook as a guide. And now we just have to go out and execute, and, and we are. I am seeing and I'm hearing of good progress on this front when I meet with our industry partners, when I meet with congressional members, when I meet with Army senior leaders, but of course there's always much more work to do, but I'm very proud of the work that's been done, and we'll keep that pressure on. Uh, I think I'd also highlight UCP objective number eight, and that is implementing our USACE research and development strategy. Praise to Dr. Pittman and the entire team down in ERDC, and of course, all of the all the MSCs and districts. Uh, we have published our first-ever, this past year, our first-ever USACE-wide R&D strategy, and just Background to this, why this was important to me and why I think this is important to the enterprise, it really gets after our ability to achieve our vision, and that is, of course, engineering solutions for our nation's toughest challenges, where today, if you look around the country, look at droughts, you can look at wildfires, you can look at harmful blooms. we don't always have proven construction solutions to get after some of these challenges. So we have to innovate and go find them, and that takes resources. And as both of you know, when you're in Washington, D.C., if you were fighting for resources, whether it's budget, whether it's people, you have to have a good argument and you have to have a plan. And that was the driver behind the need for this strategy. And if I could, I just want to give you a couple examples to again communicate to the field what I'm talking about. First one, harmful algal blooms, right? We see these across the country and then, you know, down in Florida, we're in the process of building several billion-dollar reservoirs to treat water that becomes infected with this microcysteine uh, bacteria and produces uh, harmful algal blooms. If you look at that, the cost of these projects, and they're going to be effective, but we're dealing with the problem after it's manifested, right? And if science today, if we can inoculate the human body to kill a bacteria, well, why why can't we inoculate a water body to do the same thing? So we have a a small R&D effort just on this topic going on right now on the uh, west side of Lake Erie, working with the University of Toledo, can we take an inoculation approach to a water body and treat it ahead of time safely that prevents increasing this toxicity of this uh, bacteria and forming harmful algal blooms? Anyway, I'd, I'd like to see us expand and accelerate uh, that effort. Another one I, I'd always like to mention, of course, is forecast-informed reservoir operations. Incredibly important for the nation right now, particularly the western portion of our nation with the severe drought that we're undergoing. But every, every drop of water matters, and forecast-informed reservoir operations allows us to make every drop of water matter. What I would like to do is see us expand that effort to other corners of the country where we have changing precipitation patterns beyond the West Coast. And uh, we have the ability to do that. It's going to take a little bit of investment. Two additional data sets that we're pursuing. One has to do with Plains uh, Snowpack and plain Snowmelt. That program is being stood up today couple of years uh, to go on that and great work by Northwest Division on the Upper Missouri River. And then we have to get a uh, some additional data sets on rain-on-snow events. So Think back to the 2019 flood on the Lower Missouri River, that bombogenesis that exceeded nearly every record we have on the books for the flooding that that occurred. We've got to get some additional data there where we can take this incredible technology and make better water management decisions long before the water hits the ground. But let me let me stop there. It's been a busy year and really, really proud of everything
0: that the team has accomplished. Yeah, I'm consistently amazed at what the Corps of Engineers does and the breadth of knowledge and experience and really how we work to help the public. And, and what we really need to do that is appropriations. And fortunately for the organization, we received record appro- appropriations really and then also we have the bipartisan infrastructure law so and we've heard you talk a lot about winning what does winning look like for the corps
2: yeah hey aaron sir, just some quick background uh, a couple years ago when i was nominated to become the uh, 55th chief of engineers uh, general mcconville chief of staff of the army called me and just gave me a couple bits of guidance and uh, if you know general mcconville you know winning is a part of his command philosophy he talks about it frequently, and it, uh, the conversation goes like this. So, look, winning matters to the United States Army. The U.S. Army doesn't show up to participate. The U.S. Army doesn't show up to try hard. The U.S. Army shows up to win. And so he said, General Spelman, I would like you to define winning for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and then I would like to see your campaign plan for how you're going to go about uh, winning in USACE. And I'd like you to come back and walk me through that in 60 days. So uh, the, the first part came pretty quickly, the definition of winning. For uh, for USACE, and I wanted something that spoke to everyone across this very broad and diverse organization. So we defined that as safely finishing quality projects on time within budget. Right, that's the why of the Army Corps of That's why we exist: to safely deliver quality projects on time within budget for the uh, nation. You know, and we have examples of this all the time. And just think of what happened uh, here. A couple months ago, in June, Boston Harbor, we uh, deepened Boston Harbor. If you don't know, from 40 feet to a 51-foot channel, uh, we delivered that project uh, under budget, uh, saved $68 million for the nation, and four months ahead of schedule. And so you, you start to dissect that. Well, that, that's a huge win, and not just for the region, but in, in the core, but for for everyone. So what what were the secrets for that? It, it was all in the basics. We had a great design. We had a great acquisition strategy, a superb contractor, a very strong project delivery team. Uh, That team was – that district, uh, New England district, very good at partnering and applying the three C's that we just talked about and, of course, uh, a very effective joint risk register. That's what winning looks like and that's how we've defined it, but I think this conversation on winning has also helped us get better visibility on where we can and we have to do better. And that was the driver behind what I call CCIR number eight. And uh, Aaron, and you probably heard of it, Commanders Critical Information Requirement number eight. That's where uh, I've asked the districts and our regions to report if they have a project where we exceed our contingency in cost. Shoot us a note, we wanna know why. Or if you break schedule, right? If you've, uh, your schedule exceeds now your planned float, once you report it, right? And uh, we're learning more about how we can do better at winning and increase our percentage in winning on some very complicated projects. And the trends are everywhere. It's everything from uh, work acceptance to cost estimating to scheduling to some quality assurance. And so that's what uh, I am using in our executive governance meetings every quarter to get at these trends where we're having challenges out in the field Look, and and I've said this in testimony and I'll tell everyone, the Corps of Engineers, we're not out there building Walmarts. Very seldom do two of our projects look alike, all complicated, all unique to the ground that they're uh, they're built on, but we can always do better and we want to do better and that's where we're focusing our leadership engagements on how can we enable districts to uh, better win for the nation and the Army Corps of Engineers.
1: Recently you changed the revolutionize line of effort to innovation and can you talk about the change and what you hope to achieve with this innovation line of effort?
2: Thanks for that question, Angie. What we're doing here is, uh, and I learned this from General Bostick, our our 53rd Chief of Engineers, and General Bostick used to say, I am trying to communicate to a very complex organization in a way that I cannot be misunderstood. He would share with us some of his challenges and that's what I thought I was having with the word revolutionize. And so I just changed it to uh, the word innovate because everyone understands what innovate is. You can look it up in Webster's Dictionary, right? It's about getting a new method or a new technique to get after some of these really sticky challenges we're seeing across the, uh, across the country. And again, so I, I, I chose the word innovate because, you know, as you look at 42 districts, nine MSEs, seven labs, multiple centers, all with unique cultures, it was just a way for uh, me to get after thinking about problems that we're facing in different dimensions. And as I said earlier, some of these problems we don't have good construction solutions for at the moment, and so we've got to innovate. We've got to think new ideas, and we've got to put new thought and practices on the table for consideration. And, and that's really what I'm trying to get after with this, uh, with this word change.
0: I love innovation. Now, you don't have to convince me on that one at all. I love the pushing on new ideas and just doing things differently. And I feel like sometimes, you know, with such a huge organization, so many policies and procedures that, you know, sometimes we we get stuck in our, our ways, like this is how we've always done it. This is exactly what the policy says. But to be able to really push those new ideas and have a diverse workforce and diverse ideas, I think that's just awesome that we're pushing innovation. And can you talk a little bit about that innovation, the workload that the core has overall, and what we're doing to ensure we deliver quality projects on time and within budget.
2: Yeah. And one of the things I've learned uh, in my first two years here is what what is revolutionary to one uh, person or one district or what is innovative to one district might be common sense to the next person. So some of this uh, on this topic on the unprecedented workload might seem like common sense to, to many. But let me talk about on this one, because there's a lot that we're doing. I mentioned the 23 objectives in the U.S. campaign plan, all designed to get after this. But let me just talk about resourcing people to get after the, this workload. Done a, a, a few things. And so let me outline, it, first of all, we went after, we worked with the administration and OMB to increase our SNA rates for military programs on MILCON side, military construction, and Sustainment, Restoration, and Modernization Projects, SRM. The last time that the Corps had an increase, in its SNA rate was like 1990. So it's been over 32 years since we went back to the administration and said, we we need help. And over those 32 years, because we we, we made a deliberate decision to keep our rates flat, we lost on the equivalent of about 2,500 full-time equivalents across the Corps. So think about that, 2,500 people that are no longer in districts um, because of a decision that we made to, to keep those rates where they were. We went back to the Army. Uh, we went back to o- o- Office of Secretary of Defense Staff, and we went back to OMB to make the argument that we have got to reinvest in our, uh, our oversight of this massive program that we have been given. And we drew large support across the board uh, from this all the way up to the, uh, to the White House. And so, we're not going to buy back uh, all 2,500 of those full-time equivalents that we lost. We went with a modest increase to get started. We're going to buy back uh, 1,000, but we're going to buy back the right 1,000. So, uh, experts in think of uh, cyber uh, technology or low voltage or some of the things that we're really seeing challenges with out in the field. So, that's, that's on the MILCON, SRM uh, side of the house. And, and Angel, you know on the civil work side, uh, we're funded uh, our people are funded through the expense account. And I really want to credit the team who have been doing exceptional work uh, with the administration and with our oversight committees on making the case on if we're going to have this massive investment in infrastructure, which we have seen record level appropriations, we've got to make commensurate investments in our ability to provide that oversight through the expenses. So we've seen uh, increased expense dollars not only in our annual appropriations, but also in some of the large supplementals that you mentioned earlier. That's there also working hard to make it easier for our teams out in the field to hire and hire more quickly. You know it it takes a while to bring someone into the federal workforce and we we just can't take months to do that uh, with the work that's in front of us. So I'm very happy of the work that Karen Payne and the HR community have done in increasing the amount of direct hire authorities that we have uh, within the Corps. We are now above about 95 percent of our career fields within the Corps. We have a direct hire authority for so many thanks to the Secretary of the Army for supporting that uh, force. And this uh, if you talk to the PDTs out in the field, this has been a game changer for them. Recently, last month, we just had uh, the real estate uh, field. We received a direct hire authority for there. So great, great news on that front. And I'm really proud of the work that uh, many of the regions are doing now in more localized hiring fairs where we're getting out there, talking about the core, and making the case, and then bringing people on, in some cases, right out of college, just, you know, fresh with their Bachelor of Science degree. And putting them to work out in our, our PDTs and as you know I also have a, a campaign plan objective on just changing the ways that we actually talk to people in our interview panels and having a more uh, a more conversational approach where we get to elicit better information from our applicants and that we bring on the, the best absolute talent that we can to get after this uh, this massive challenge that we have but no a number of things there but uh, a lot of things that we're continuing to work to make sure that we bring on the right people and the best people
0: to help us get after this, this historic mission. Yeah, it's good. It's really important that we have the right people. And another place that I feel like we have the right people is a lot of times our, our sponsors, you know, so our sponsors have all these great resources available. And, okay. and really, it we don't necessarily always leverage them. So. You know, I know I've been uh, a big proponent of alternative delivery and P3 where we partner closer to deliver and then the federal loan program. Uh, so, just trying to do things differently on the delivery side. So, it's great to have the, the manpower resources we need, uh, but let's look to leverage those to get us, you know, moving forward in the right direction to, to execute these missions.
1: Earlier, you mentioned the command philosophy for partnering, and can you talk a little bit more about your philosophy and how uh, we are working to enhance the way that we partner?
2: Sure. So, Andy, uh, you're right. Partnering and partnerships—it's one of my four priorities uh, that I had when I when I came in, and it's still very important to to all of us, right? So, told people, I've shared with uh, folks. You've heard me say this before. I thought we have a consistency problem mm-hmm. on the topic of partnering across the enterprise. and What I mean by that is we have districts that do this extremely well uh, across the board and then we have districts that, that frankly don't do it well at all and they have, they've got a lot of work to do. And then it, it, even in some districts you have consistency problems. So you have a, a project delivery team on one end of the uh, of the hallway that does partnering extremely well and then a PDT on the other end of the hallway. Uh, not well at all. So, I wanted to improve our consistency across the board. And this was based on feedback, again, that I was receiving from many of our industry partners out in the field. And so, again, we published our partnering philosophy. I talked about the uh, the three C's uh, earlier. And then we also published a partnering playbook. Again, the first guidance that we've put out in many, many years uh, on this topic. And I've made this mandatory reading for all of serving uh, district commanders and our regional commanders and it's, it's it's a topic that i like to talk about as i get out and meet with the, our teams in the field one of the first things i always talk about right after safety is i go right to the partnering and how are we doing and how are we applying these principles on a, a particular uh, project site and then it just allows uh, me to share best practices across the uh, the enterprise but this is something uh, we're not there yet we're uh, we as i mentioned earlier we are seeing Vast improvement, and again, I'm mean, I'm not hearing this uh, from just from the inside. It, it's also from our partners out in the field. But as I said, there's there's always more work to do, and uh, I'm very proud of the uh, the products that we've put out. I'm even more proud of how people are being innovative in the way that they apply uh, these principles to their uh, to their particular projects.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, partnering is super important and being able to to work and communicate and, and do things together is where we need to go. So really great effort there. We are running short on time here, but I would like to get to one listener question before we go, sir.
1: Hi, General Spellman. I am Carlos Sparks from the Regional Planning Environmental Division North. My question for you is, how is the agency leadership proposing teams balance risk-informed decision-making, Budget and schedule accountability
2: and risk and uncertainty. Will there be risk tenants identified where the enterprise is willing to take on more or less risk? Yeah. So first of all, a great question with many different dimensions to it, Aaron. And so thank you for that. You know, my, my proposal is that we cannot talk about this enough. We have to talk about risk-informed decision making frequently, and then we have to talk specifically on this topic because. I am coming to believe that there are no general answers here. This is generally, in my view, project by project discussions and it's based on on facts on the ground and details are important. And I think the conversation should always start with who owns the risk because it's not always clear who owns it. So let me just, maybe a couple of examples here um, might be helpful. I was called risk averse in so many words uh, recently by uh, another Army senior leader, someone senior to me, because of a recommendation that I made on a project. This, uh, this senior leader, for all the right reasons, uh, wanted to pull a project that was important to him to the left by about three years. And what I shared with the senior leaders, so they wanted to put this into the 24 program. Uh, well, we, on this particular project, again, not arguing that it wasn't important to the Army and to the soldiers that it was going to serve. But we didn't have a design done, Uh, we didn't have a cost schedule risk analysis complete, we didn't have an estimate, and we certainly didn't have a certification uh, from the district that it could be built in the year that it was being programmed for. So you need all four of those things right before you take your, in this case, the 24 program to OSD. And it was due to OSD on the, uh, the 15th of July here just a couple months ago, and we had received this decision, this, uh, this, this request uh, from the Army senior leader just a month before. So there's no way to get, you know, 12 months of work packed into just a, a, a few short weeks. And so uh, we took that recommendation all the way up to the Secretary of the Army, and the conversation went like this, and it started with, just as I recommended, who owns the risk? So several levels to this one. Well, the risk to the Army would have been losing the funding for this particular project, right? So uh, typically if the program goes to OSD and you don't have the estimate, you don't have the certification, you don't have a design or the cost schedule risk analysis, typically what OSD will do will pull the funds and they'll put that to uh, another uh, project. And certainly when that program goes to uh, the Hill in February timeframe, the Hill would pull the funds. So the risk to the Army would have been loss of funds for that project. The risk to case would have been, wow, we, we would have really rushed the design, probably possibly risked a design deficiency and we'd have to go back and correct it. Most likely we would have gotten the estimate wrong if we had rushed it that bad and, that, of course, you're always risking an above threshold reprogramming with that. Now you're adding eight to nine months to the schedule with just uh, that. And then, of course, there's risk to the soldiers and the commander that this facility was going to serve without having a quality facility. And so for all of the right reasons, we had this conversation on risk and who owned the different pieces of it, and I believe the Army made the right decision at the end of the day. The the project is put back into the year program where it was originally uh, resided. So anyway, it's having that discussion, but I, I say that that all sounds like common sense, but there are times on projects where we don't have that conversation. And uh, or we don't elevate the conversation to the right level to the people that own the risk, and then we, we find ourselves in trouble. So again, a great question from the field, and we c- cannot talk about this enough. But we have to talk about it specifically because every project is different, and who owns that risk on every pro- is is different as well. So thanks for that uh, that question.
1: Before we go, could you tell our listeners what inspires you and why you are passionate about the Corps of Engineers?
0: It's
2: our people. We have fantastic people in the Army Corps of Engineers, and, you know, I am blessed because I get to get out and see all 42 districts, all nine regions, all the centers, all the labs. You just cannot come back home from any one of these trips and get ready to go out on another one tomorrow. When you meet and see the talented workforce that we have doing what they do out in the field each and every day, that's what keeps me fired up and wanting to serve in the Army Corps of Engineers, Angie. We have great people.
0: Thank you, General Spellman, for joining us today on Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the Core and revolutionize civil works together.